0: We choose to go
1: to the moon in this and do the other thing.
2: It really is a revolution. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Roger, we'll stop Discovery. Welcome back. A great ending to the new beginning.
3: Welcome to How Did It Come To This, where what's in the news is the cause from history. Sitting next to me is a woman who thinks it's actually a short way to Tipperary. It's Shivon Doherty. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> and not sitting with us tonight is a man who's off supporting the home front it's james tuckwell
2: oh james where are you
3: james isn't here um
2: Who's going to check us? I should,
3: uh, maybe maybe we should explain that a little bit. James isn't here because we're recording at a very odd time for us.
2: We are. Um, it's my bedtime. It's
3: nighttime. Yeah, it um,
2: like 7 PM. it's like 7pm. Crazy.
3: <laughs> um, and uh, we're actually, we're recording at Chabon's house tonight. We are. Which is also unusual. Uh-huh. Um, and James, he couldn't, He sadly, he couldn't be with us tonight. No,
2: no. But that's
3: for, that's for good reason. Yes. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yep. Uh, I'm Daniel Matters.
2: Uh, uh, the man who will be making this podcast until his last shilling. Nice. So hopefully some of you get that reference.
3: If you don't, look it up. Yeah. Yeah. See if you can find it. Yeah. So, <laughs> like maybe if you Google it with the topic. Yes. Maybe they'll find it.
2: What is the topic, Daniel?
3: Well, this week on how did it come to this? From Australia to Ypres, from Canada to Vimy Ridge, World War I has always been an event that has loomed large in our national consciousnesses. What do Australia, Canada, and World War One have in common? Is there a right way to commemorate conflict? Why do we put Anzac Day above Remembrance Day? Could World War One have been avoided? Should politicians censor historical discussions? Who is Jesse Alexander
2: and why is he here?
3: And ultimately, how did it come to this?
2: Firstly... Excellent pronunciation of Ypres. Was it? Well done. I was so scared. Yeah, I know. I could tell. I could tell. But no, Ypres. Well done.
3: Yeah, thank you. Très
2: bien. Oh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um. So, we're we're here on Remembrance Day. Yep. Special Remembrance Day episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought uh, there's there's been some things happening in in the uh, the world of history education. Mm-hmm. Um, that we've been discussing recently yep
2: specifically relating to world
3: war one specifically relating to world war one mm-hmm. uh and relating to the anzacs um yes. and as such uh there is an article that was in the guardian on the 26th of october so uh-huh. a little while ago now but yeah. um, still quite relevant. relatively recent yeah uh it's a it's a article that's titled alan tudge is dead wrong anzac should be contested as it always has been Uh, For those who don't know, uh, before I read some of this article, Alan Tudge is our federal education minister. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, this is a little bit from the article. Ever since the warmonger Billy Hughes urged Australian men to go and fight for white Australia in France, during the First World War, Australian politicians have been banging the drum on the supposed sanctity of Anzac Day. And yes, uh, sorry, I should say this part is now speaking about Alan Tudge, and yes, he was speaking to the Socially Conservative Centre for Independent Studies when he said, we should expect our young people leaving school to have an understanding of our liberal democracy, how it is that we are one of the wealthiest, most free, most tolerant, and most egalitarian countries in all of human history, which millions have immigrated to. If they don't learn this, they won't defend it as the previous generations did. Hmm. So, Mr. Tudge uh, is... Talking about uh, the the new curriculum the yep. history, yeah, uh, and uh, he thinks that we shouldn't contest history.
2: Yes, specifically shouldn't contest Australian history during World War One and um and the Anzac the Anzac legend, legend basically, which yeah. I think
3: is problematic. Yes. And and look, you know, I you know. I, it's tough and and we're going to talk about this mm. with Jesse Alexander in a minute who yep. some of you might know and we'll talk about him in a second but mm. uh the like you know i i just the, our soldiers did go and fight and yep. they died and there yep. was there was sacrifice and yep. it is something that is
2: it's very important it's to comm- in, and commemorate it yes <laughs> but, but the <laughs> rhetoric around all of this is extremely problematic uh for me Basically, what he's asking us to do is to simplify history to a consistent narrative that we're all uh, just going to, to teach, uh, basically just hand it down to the students. There's no inquiry, there's no investigation, there's no questioning. Um, and that's not what history is.
3: No, definitely not. Mm. Definitely not. And so uh, to talk about this today. Um, we've got we got a special <laughs> guest. Our first, it's our first guest on the podcast, and it's, it's very a exciting.
0: Big deal, guys! It is, and it's
3: Jesse Alexander, who mm. is the host of the YouTube channel The Great War. Mm-hmm. He'll talk about that later on, but uh, yeah, it, um, we're so excited to have him.
2: Absolutely. Um,
3: and uh, so we're gonna we're gonna throw to our interview with Jesse Alexander now. Uh, but to get there, we've got a special way to get there. Siobhan. We sure do. Um, Take it away. All right. Worthy. Get up. For the first time on How Did It Come To This, we have a special guest, author, YouTube host, and historian, having worked in museums, on World War I battlefields, universities, and now the host of the immensely popular Great War YouTube channel. It's Jesse Alexander. Hello. Hi there Thanks very
1: much for
2: having
3: me No, thank you for coming Uh, Jesse is joining us all the way from Vienna Which is really cool
2: Yeah, Yeah. it's our first Well, not only our first guest Our first international guest It is our first international guest
3: And we've also uh, We've got one listener in Vienna somewhere um, yeah. Okay. I've seen on the stats before. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so Daniel's a real nerd with seeing, uh, you know, who is uh, listening where. We've got a, a fan in Texas, which yep. is interesting. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And yeah, Vienna of all places. <laughs> well, so. Hopefully,
1: hopefully this will grow your audience a little bit. Let's see. We'll that would see be how we very go. exciting.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Jesse. How did you? Uh, how did you come to be where you are today?
1: Well, I up in a small town in canada just outside of montreal and that's i guess not uh, an environment that produces heaps of uh, historians but somehow it worked out for me sure. i ended up getting quite interested and in studying history and my parents then supported me which is not always the case when it comes to studying history there are some you know some prejudices as far as job uh, potential is concerned but um yeah then i was quite lucky because i studied in ottawa the capital of Canada, of yeah. course. So there's lots of cultural institutions, lots of professors kind of helped me along with uh, different opportunities. So I ended up working for a few different museums when I lived in Ottawa. I started off, I think actually as a tour guide at Parliament. I think that was kind of my jumping off point. Okay. And becoming a tour guide at Parliament, of course, it involves talking about history and architecture and art history. And it gave me the relevant experience to apply to become a tour guide at the Vimy Ridge Mm. Canadian First World War Memorial in France. And I was lucky enough to get that, uh, seeing as I spoke both official languages of Canada, being from Quebec. Mm. And so that is sort of the launching pad. All else flows from a chance encounter with Kellyanne, a fellow student from Newfoundland who worked at Parliament in German class, who said, hey, why don't you apply to Parliament? And it all kind of flowed from there. And I worked at museums and I did some research in archives for you know, the Canadian War Museum, which was renewing itself at the time. And then I took a break for nearly 10 years, okay. which is sometimes hard to recover from. Yeah. But I moved to Germany, then I moved to Austria. I didn't know the language that well at first. So my job opportunities were quite limited. Mm-hmm. Working in history, usually you've got to have a good knowledge of the local language. Uh, but I did take the opportunity to go back to school. I did a master's here at the University of Vienna, and that then opened a few more doors. I quit my non-history job, and like you know, like anybody who's unemployed, I was watching YouTube for some of the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. And I knew about the Great War Channel. I'd, I'd watched it on and off uh, for a couple of years at that point, and then I saw that they were looking to extend the project past the November 11th, 1918 armistice that Indy was moving on to another project. And so I said, well, I haven't worked in front of the camera anymore, but uh, let's take a chance. And I had a friend that helped me out with an, uh, an application video. And I tried to seem as funny, as knowledgeable, and impress them, and threw in a bunch of pictures from my weird travels to weird World War I <laughs> spots around the world. Yep. <laughs> and yeah they called me back that's great so that's kind of yeah and I had to learn the art of trying to be a uh, a historian on camera which is sure. uh, quite a bit different than being a historian off camera different I can skill. guarantee you that yep, sure.
3: yep. Yeah.
2: yeah yeah do you find that um maybe being a tour guide um and therefore having to interact with people helps with like the on-camera stuff
1: yes it did um although as I say it, it is a completely different thing you, you, you can't the trouble is trying to seem not too wooden yeah I mean I I don't have an acting background right I have a public speaking background so yes a tour guide in terms of being able to speak clearly Mm -hmm. being able to try to uh, organize my thoughts so to, to structure the the scripts properly and the trouble comes when you need to find that balance of of how to have your body language and tone and come across on camera,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: if you watch some of my very early episodes, you'll see that uh, you know, I hope anyway, I've made some progress since You've then
0: developed. <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: so it it took some tricks. I took lessons here from an actress, yeah okay. yep. not to act, but just to to have that on camera presence be a bit more. I use the term very loosely because it's not natural, but quote-unquote natural. So you look like people expect you to somewhat look on camera. (laughs) There's an on-camera natural, let's say, that you try to – go for as well that was it's, probably one of the biggest challenges actually since i didn't you know i didn't have any experience acting or
2: anything yeah, before. yeah. sure. yeah i i saw an interview this is completely like left wing but um with uh, jamie lee curtis recently and she said the hardest thing about being an actor is that you know what you're going to say next but your audience isn't supposed to know that you know that and so like being yeah so it sounds like it's the exact same thing really so you could be an right. actor I, in after a recent this interview she <laughs>
1: Yeah, she also said that she got a lot of roles because of her sex appeal. So there, I think there are oh many parallels <laughs> between Jamie Lee Curtis For sure.
0: and me. Yeah, but yeah. you never know.
3: Oh, well. <laughs> so, um, we So we do, we do a segment on the show. Um, which is Siobhan's fun yeah. facts. <laughs> yeah, And what we wanted to know was, is there, is there an interesting fact about World War I that you know about that you don't think is quite well known in the general population? What is an interesting fact that you know that you think should be known by other people?
1: Mm. Well, I think there's a, hopefully somewhat of a list of those, mm. but I guess I would say in particular because of the topics that we've covered on the, on the Great War channel since I joined, I... I think that it's not really appreciated at least in in Europe and Australia, New Zealand and North America, just how much the fighting continued after the armistice was signed. I mean, yes, the the classical great war is over Mm -hmm. with the armistice in 1918. And then the, the peace treaties in the summers of the years after that, but for central and Eastern Europe and the middle East, fighting goes on. Yeah. It's not mm. the same actors doing the fighting, mm-hmm. but yeah. for regular people, there's fighting all over the place. I mean, the Poles are fighting all of their neighbors, mm. uh, including the Russians. Yeah. The Russians are fighting each other. Yeah. The Hungarians are fighting the Romanians. Uh, the Yugoslavs are even fighting the Austrians. And then of course, in the Middle East, the British and French take over and they're fighting against the Iraqis and the Syrians and the Turks and the Greeks in land in Turkey. And, all of this I think just is sort of off of our radar and that's a very big fact <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in a way, but I think it's quite a significant one and it helps us understand the long term impact of mm. war better. Yeah. And, so and I that's think, my interesting fact.
3: Yeah. I think, um, you know, having, you know, having started watching your videos with my, with my classes, um, one of the things that they do, um, talk about is, you know, Oh, but, like yeah, World War One is over. Why are they Why are they still fighting? Why are they all still going going at it? And I think you know one of the one of the topics that we do is called power and authority, and it looks at the time period between World War One and, and World War Two, um, and the rise of dictators and and that type of thing. And um, I think yeah, a lot of a lot of students do kind of yeah they see that end of the classical World War One, as you say, as a you know well the fighting's over guys, let's yeah. go home. But it's, it's not like that, yeah.
2: Do you think a lot of it has something to do with um, like the like the Eurocentric kind of Western, like the fighting happened on the Western front and it finished... But know, the main actors got, yeah, are done. Yeah, so do you think it has a lot to do with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, let's face it, we, to some extent, live in bubbles of perception defined by our language skills, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so if we are mostly... English native speakers who generally operate only in English or almost only in English for most of us in, in the former British Mm, mm. world, then for the British, it was over pretty much. Also for the French. So my other kind of language world Mm -hmm. is French in Canada, right? Same thing. But if you are Polish or Hungarian or Turkish or Greek or Russian then it's a different world then you're exposed to books and movies or tv shows or other cultural references or you have it in school and that kind of thing about all these other conflicts that go on afterwards yeah so i think i think that's um that's a part of it yeah
0: yeah yeah,
2: yeah. i think it's something that we're getting better at too is like just going beyond that that traditional perspective um yeah. And, One and, must hope. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Definitely. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, so Canada is um, a similar country to Australia in that we were involved in World War One due to our traditional colonial ties to uh, Britain, but were never directly threatened in the conflict. Um, so in saying that, what does World War One and Remembrance Day mean for Canadians?
1: Well, the simplest answer is that it, means different things to different Canadians. And that meaning is also sort of changed over time. Canada is also like Australia in that we're an extremely diverse country. Mm. And a lot of different elements of the population have different types of connections to Mm. the First World War. And I think that comes through a little bit in Remembrance Day. It's important. It's widely commemorated, the government invests a lot into commemorating it and the public uh, remembrance day services the general public narrative of the government and most institutions and I think probably most of the population is that this is extremely important and we need to commemorate it and there are under underlying ideas of you know why we commemorate is because of the human sacrifice but also in a way the the justice of the cause Mm -hmm. um, of Canada's involvement in the three wars that are most prominent. So first and second, and then Korea, Mm -hmm. even though Afghanistan now also takes quite a prominent role since Canada Mm -hmm. was there for a long time and lost over 150 people. Mm -hmm. But, and I think I'm especially conscious of this being from Quebec, which has a different, often a different historical kind of memory than English-speaking Canada, so for many French-speaking Canadians, it doesn't quite have the same resonance in the same way because, in the general narrative of French Canadian history, the First World War is not as—it's not as crucial in that sense. It's not—it's not considered a, a just war that was participated in for a greater good and or a tragic sacrifice that deserves to be remembered. Kind of Mm -hmm. those are two themes that are very important to a lot of English-speaking Canadians. But to a lot of French-speaking Canadians, it's just not as relevant. It wasn't a core of their national identity narrative other than conscription was introduced, uh, different to Australia. And most French Canadians didn't want to volunteer to fight in in what was seen as a British war. And so it's another example of this clash between british canadian majority and french canadian minority that a couple hundred thousand french canadians were conscripted and forced to fight when the majority weren't didn't want to volunteer Mm, so that's mm. that's something that does play a role in in remembrance day in canada is that it doesn't have the same emotional resonance for french canadians in particular Okay, Uh, although there are other groups too i'll 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 keep it to that for the moment. Sure.
3: sure. Okay. Yeah. No, that's interesting yeah. to, yeah, to yeah, hear yeah. that, Yeah, yeah. I, I,
2: I hadn't considered that as, um, yeah, the, the French-Canadian and English-Canadian separate perspectives. Like,
1: I mean, my great-grandfather was a French-Canadian who was conscripted and sent there.
0: Okay.
2: That was my next question. And Is there a personal yeah. connection? Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, this this really helps me think about it in, in sort of different ways. Mm. It's not that simple for me either. Yeah. He didn't volunteer, mm. and then mm. he was conscripted and uh, lost an arm in oh, the wow. summer offensives of 1918. Yeah. And on my other side of the family, my great uh, great uncle, he was born in England, immigrated to canada just before the war and had served in the militia in england so he volunteered straight away yeah. in september 1914 and was with the first canadians to see combat and was killed immediately essentially on the on the first oh, wow. or second wow, yeah. first second or third day they never found him mm-hmm. and they don't know exactly yeah. of uh, basically the first canadian battle the first battle that canadians were involved with at ypres in the spring of 1915 so I, in a way my family encapsulates those two sides of the coin mm. wow, yeah. very close connection to britain and yeah. volunteering because felt that it was the right thing to do
0: yeah
1: and then not wanting to volunteer and uh, and being forced and being so. yeah.
2: yeah yeah wow okay okay yeah um, all right. So have you heard of the um, the Anzac legend slash myth? Like you, you're aware of, of what that is? Yes.
1: I mean, I can't claim to be an expert, but essentially yeah. it's, you know, this, this idea of the experience of uh, Gallipoli in particular Mm. and the character of the soldiers there is something to be admired, how they react to that awful situation, that it's connected with this sense of Australian identity. You know, we all went through this together and these guys are admirable guys and the British eh, it's a little complicated now. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. That's, am I doing it no, just? you, you yeah, summed it up extremely
2: well. <laughs> yeah. So um, Australia, we federated as a nation in 1901 and um, Gallipoli was very much seen as our baptism by fire because, um, you know, we voted to become a country and, and we didn't have to fight off an oppressor or anything like that. And so this was like our first test as a very young nation. Um, and and then the rest is exactly like you said. So these, these young men or boys, like, heeded the call and, you know, they were brave and they were heroic and uh, a little bit, um, you know, uh, disrespectful of British authority, a bit kind of, you know, um, the larrikin and things like that. And, yep. yeah, it's very much ingrained in our national identity. Um, so, like, is there a similar narrative for Canadian soldiers or...?
1: Yes, there is. Yeah. I mean, I think we are generally a bit more chill about the, the British side of things <laughs> than, than the Australians are. I sure. think we're a bit more polite. Uh, yeah, somehow. I think that's
2: just general, yeah, Canadians. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but yes, uh, essentially there, there is somewhat of a similar narrative and much of that centers on a lot of the same ideas, right? So Canada confederated. In 1867, so a little bit older, that we became mm-hmm. one self-governing colony slash dominion, mm-hmm. um, and this idea of colony to nation being the kind of way to understand the development of the Canadian state is an Im- influential one uh, for many Canadians. It's it's really present in our in our pop culture and and documentaries and films and how mm-hmm. people learn about it at school. Mm-hmm. And so the First World War is seen as a time when because of these difficulties that all these Canadian volunteers faced on the battlefields that it did sort of solidify a separate Canadian national identity, not only more separate from the British, but more closer to each other because there were immigrants who, non-British origin immigrants who served, uh, there were French Canadians who served, also who volunteered, of course. Mm Uh, Native Canadians played a prominent role, play a more prominent role now, actually, in our memory of the First World War than they did at the time when Mm. they were volunteering and fighting, Mm -hmm. 5,000 of them, that is. Um, So, yes, uh, there is a similar narrative in a way that there's this baptism of fire for the young nation.
0: Mm.
1: And that has kind of become quite an important idea. There's a very famous quote which, of course, is written after the war because no one in the right mind is thinking this in the heat of battle.
0: <laughs> but
1: uh, at Vimy Ridge, you know, this officer says, Yes, uh, I didn't see, you know, soldiers going up the ridge. I saw uh, a United Canada going up the ridge or whatever. I'm paraphrasing right. and angling yeah. it, but
3: that's <laughs> yeah. his. Sure. That's his that's
2: point, right? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Okay. Sounds very similar then. It does. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Um,
3: so we we often uh, when when I'm when I'm teaching, I'm sure when Siobhan's teaching this topic too. We talk about uh, the build up to World War One and you know all the causes and the main causes and we, we like you know we build it up as this big, inter complex thing. Um, <laughs> and you know uh, Shavon and I were discussing before we came on air that um, you know there's there's a lot of things happening at this time period. There's a lot of political assassinations going on at the time as well. There's a lot of just general tension, tension and, yeah. and stuff. So I guess in your opinion. If Franz Ferdinand had never been shot, <laughs> do you think there would have been a great war? Uh, the classic,
1: the classic uh, pub history enthusiast yes. yep. question. <laughs> yes. Um I mean, first off, nothing's inevitable in history. Thank
2: you. I say that this all is, the time. This <laughs>
1: important. It's so easy. It's so easy to look back and say, well, it happened, so of course it was all leading to that and so on. Mm-hmm. That said, <laughs> that said, <laughs> I I would say probably yes, there, there would have been some European level mm. war because mm-hmm. the assassination is an immediate uh, cause, but yeah. as you and your students probably know quite well, there are all sorts of other pressures pushing in that direction and I think That doesn't mean that those long-term things like imperial competition or alliance systems or whatever have to cause a general war. They don't have to. But if I try to think about it, to sort of whittle it down to this question, look, even if he hadn't been assassinated, Austro-Hungary's policy was still, we want a, a Balkan war. Yes. And him not being assassinated wouldn't have changed that overnight. It might sure. have changed it in five years, or mm, three mm. years, or whatever, um, if he inherited the throne and had a different policy then. Mm. But it doesn't mean that in those next two and a half years, when Franz Joseph was still alive, and Konrad was still in charge of the military, that Austria-Hungary would have changed that policy. Mm,
3: mm.
1: They considered They considered starting a Balkan war a couple of times already earlier yes, yes. to to get at Serbia. And there were mobilizations from the Austrians earlier, before 1914. So, if that's going to be our main domino, is Austro-Hungarian policy there, well, his assassination doesn't change that overnight. So, Mm. we'd still have several years of that possibility. And, of course, that then creates the chance that it's going to become a European war, because Germany has a particular policy of supporting mm. Austria-Hungary mm. and, you know, pushing its its foreign policy. And that's not going to change yep. whether or not he's assassinated. So if we look at those as kind of two of the main immediate drivers mm. that are not uh, these long-term uh, causes necessarily, but mm-hmm. uh, are more focused on how the general war got unleashed, mm. then I think um, we could say that it's still... Probable.
3: Yep. Yeah. I like that answer. I don't
1: feel one hundred percent confident about that, but there you go.
2: <laughs> no, I,
3: I I like that answer. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Um,
2: Do you think that it um, it was seized upon as an opportunity when it when it happened, um, or was it really you know an act of you know needing to get revenge or justice for what happened?
1: I think it's a combination, but I definitely think that it's uh, it's the opportunity that the Austro-Hungarian authorities were looking for mm. to solve this, to solve this Balkan problem that yeah. they, that they felt that they had. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: Cool. cool. I like it. Okay. Um, so, oh, we'll go back to Vimy Ridge then. Um, so it's almost like the Gallipoli for Canadians. It's the battle where, um, the Canadians are renowned for their achievements. Can you tell us a bit about it?
1: Yeah, it's become Canada's most famous battle probably in our history, Mm. and certainly the most famous of the First World War. It is a little bit different than Gallipoli in that it comes at a later stage in the war, so the conditions are different, Mm. Um, the outcome is successful for the Allies Mm as well. A key difference. Which creates creates a difference, uh, an important emotional difference, I think, as well in some ways. Mm. It's also not exclusively a Canadian battle, of course, Mm. because... Uh, the Canadian Corps is under British command, and there's a British infantry brigade that is involved in the battle, and it's mostly British artillery that is supporting the Canadian Corps. And this, my friends, gets forgotten in <laughs> Canada as well. So I want to start with that. Um, what makes the Battle of Vimy Ridge important is. Well, first of all, that it's chosen as the symbolic battle Mm -hmm.
0: uh,
1: and the the spot where Canada's First World War Memorial, the main one, uh, should be built. There were others that were considered, but Mm -hmm. it kind of won the competition. So that kind of gives it even more. But the battle in April of 1917, it's part of a diversionary offensive by the British to distract the Germans in Northern France, while further down the line, the French are trying to launch the main offensive for 1917. I think that also kind of gets a bit forgotten about. The poor French were doing a a lot more fighting than the British were Mm -hmm. for the first few years of the war. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea is, will the Canadian Corps is supposed to take this ridge. It's a locally important position. It dominates the flat plains around it. And it's a kind of linchpin of the German defenses in the area. And it's the first time that all four infantry divisions of the Canadian Expeditionary Force fight in line, kind of on the same day, on the same place. Mm -hmm. Before that, you know, they were introduced one by one. The last one was in training and so on and so forth. So they were never used kind of all at once. Yep. And that's got quite a lot of symbolism. If you're thinking about national unity and Mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. And so they capture in the space of a couple of days, this heavily defended ridge with effective use of artillery and infantry tactics together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's essentially the story of the battle. It's a, a local tactical success. So the Allies keep the ridge until 1918, and they're able to force the Germans to pull back a fair way, like several kilometers into this plain. But it's not a war-winning victory. Okay. Yep. Uh, the, the main French offensive that's supposed to turn the tide Fails yeah. in the spring yeah. of 1917, yeah. mm-hmm. and so uh, a tactical success in the diversionary offensive, yeah. which is of course much bigger than just Vimy Ridge. There are British attacking on either side, and so on. It's an important achievement that you know the corps builds its competences. It has a success, and it can apply those tactics to other battles. Then in 1918, successfully, but you know it's not a game changer. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a local limited success and what's interesting about it is um, that the eventual commander of the Canadian Corps Arthur Curry who's kind of Canada's then top performing general let's mm-hmm. say of the war mm-hmm. he actually thinks that there are a couple of battles fought in 1918 that were militarily more impressive achievements by the Canadian sure. Corps so so Vimy's importance lies in its symbolism I think more than the yep. battlefield events, which mm-hmm. are important, but of a sort of limited importance in a way. Yep.
3: No, yep. I think I think that uh, that mirrors a lot of the Australian experience too. In in that so, yeah. Gallipoli is, you know like i mean we we venerate it a lot but there's yeah. mu- there's much more important things that happen later on well, on the western front for us when we teaching that we really should we teaching at.
2: yeah the kids about <laughs> yeah. it and and it's like guys the most successful part of the gallipoli campaign was the withdrawal um we lost and they're like oh wait <laughs> why why do we why do we celebrate it and they'll commemorate it the way that we do and um yeah there's much more in 1918 with general monash that again like you know it yes. turned the tide and it's um much less known so yeah, it's it's interesting that we do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, do you think there is like one big mystery or question um, that you would like answered about World War One, um, or is there something that's unknowable about World War One?
1: Uh, this is a killer question. Yeah. <laughs> there are, you know, there are a million sure questions that I would like answered uh, definitively yep. <laughs> sure. about yep. World War One. Yeah. and like every historical event, there are a million things that are unknowable uh, because we can't know what particular people were thinking at the time. Mm -hmm, We can't mm -hmm. know if what they wrote down later is really what they were thinking at the time they were making decisions and so on and so forth. I think one question that bugs me is why didn't Germany see the advantage of waiting? Like, you know, German leaders felt so much pressure that war is better to happen sooner rather than later mm, because mm. Russia is growing in strength. We're surrounded. Mm-hmm. Um, why didn't they th- kind of, couldn't they have those fears? Okay, every every state at the time, I think has those fears about the competition with others. But if we look back on like the economic statistics, I mean, they're far outpacing Britain, mm-hmm. in terms of economic growth, yeah. and Russia was so much weaker than they estimated and mm. thought, and a lot of those weaknesses are quite clear in retrospect, so why weren't those things as clear to them at the time, and why mm. didn't they have weight in their kind of assessment of foreign policy options and, and war-making options. Mm. That's something that uh, bugs me. I mean I'm not like a mega expert on the internal workings of the German government and military in the lead up to the war. Mm. But obviously their decision making wasn't based on those factors. It was based on the fear uh, factor yeah. and the mm. well now is better than later factor. So yeah
0: um
1: I always wonder how their brains got so focused on that aspect to the to the exclusion of the other.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I when I think about that, that kind of time period too, a, a lot of, a lot of my students too, when we look at things like they, when they enact the the Schlieffen plan, um, like, I think they kind of, with hindsight, the students with hindsight, try and look back and go, oh, but like, why were they focusing on knocking out France so quickly? That wasn't going to happen. Like, mm. Russia wasn't that big of a problem. What, what were they doing? Um,
2: yeah. Well, I think like, I mean... Russia was just so big, you know, right? Like, yeah. so even if it, like, um, disorganized perhaps, uh, not as industrial, like, capable, mm. but but huge. Um, yeah, And, for sure. you know, you learn that in World War II, right? Like, they were just able yeah, sure, to just throw, sure. throw soldier after soldier at, at, at whatever the Germans threw at them. So mm. um, you can see why they were threatened by it, but yeah. you're right in that, you know, waiting was also an option that they could have considered yeah. <laughs> yes definitely.
1: <laughs> uh, definitely i mean in terms of france uh, you know they managed in 1870 for sure
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty successfully Beat the french pretty
1: badly <laughs> yeah. Pretty yeah quickly yeah but obviously the you know the french army of 1914 is it's far different. yeah better <laughs> a far better military force than i should say effective the the french army was actually well-trained and professional in 1870 but uh, its logistics and its leadership were not particularly good and mm-hmm. those things had improved quite a lot mm-hmm. by yeah. 1914 along with other factors so you can see the temptation there geographically sure, and historically sure. that yeah. france might be an easier candidate mm-hmm. but hey that's not how the cookie crumbles <laughs> <laughs> for sure
2: hmm. All right. Um so what do you think the layman needs to know layperson I'm going to say. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. What do you think the layperson needs to know about World War 1 that they probably don't know?
1: Well, I think it's fair to say most lay people don't know much at all about World War 1, mm. so we can start anywhere, but yeah, yeah. I think for someone for someone who has a bit of an interest there are a couple of things. First I would say it's not necessarily like you would see in the movies or read mm-hmm. in the poems mm-hmm. that's one aspect of the war's legacy but that's not it mm-hmm. it's not as simple as everybody was stupid and ran through mud at a machine gun mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's way mm-hmm. way more complicated than that mm-hmm. but in terms of uh, more more practical things i think it's worth knowing that it really shaped 20th century Mm, and mm. therefore the world that we still know i mean obviously we're getting a bit farther away from it now but at least up until the 1990s period where the cold war ends and maps change again it it really has a significant influence i mean in german it's often called the urkatastrophe so the original catastrophe Catastrophe, Of the 20th century, that all other catastrophes flow kind You're of right. from it. Yeah, but if you think about it, you know, fascism grows out of it.
2: Yeah,
1: socialism doesn't start with the First World War, but political Bolshevism and communism as a as an international political phenomenon that is protected and and promoted by states and so on that comes out of it. Mm. Social revolution comes out of it. Mm. The map of Central and Eastern Europe is completely reworked. And yes, that gets partially changed uh, after 1945. But essentially, if you look at a map of Europe in the 1990s, it's very similar to a map of Europe in 1919. That wasn't the case uh, before that. And a lot of countries, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Mm -hmm. Turkey, um, Hungary, Austria, Poland, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, They all, and Ukraine as well, Belarus, they all draw their current iterations. They they go back to the peace treaties after the First World War. And so I think that's something that's extremely important to keep in mind, that Mm -hmm. politically and and geographically, it shaped a lot. And that's not saying anything about culture, material culture, and all that sort of stuff, because the use of propaganda and all that kind of thing... Is, uh, is a whole other yeah. factor yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. for sure.
2: Mm. Um, with you saying that the, the Germans sort of think of it as the original catastrophe, um, is it commemorated differently there than like how it would be in, in Britain or Canada or Australia? Or like, how do they remember Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah? There
1: is no comparison. It's, okay. it's like complete other worlds. Mm. Mm. It, it, it strikes so little public resonance in terms of you know emotional stuff there's very little commemoration there's been a a little bit more since the centenary Mm -hmm. uh, but that's mostly official stuff and there's little public uh, resonance uh, I would say other than the kind of people who are into history or into genealogy and that sort of thing or who have military connections and so on but it, it, it really is not that much of a factor. World War II for Germany, for obvious reasons, culturally and, and psychologically and emotionally overshadows yeah. uh, everything yeah. else yeah. as far mm-hmm. as that is concerned. So, you know, the, And the same goes for Austria, yeah. mm-hmm. actually, as well. Okay. So the First World War is kind of considered far more distant and less connected to them than we would consider it because for uh, Britain for Canada or Australia or France or Italy, we still feel that we belong to the same national community and the same country yeah. that fought those wars, mm-hmm. Yes, that fought yes. that war. Yeah. But for Germany and Austria, and then also for a host of other countries, there's a break in that in a way. Okay, mm-hmm. yes, it was Germany, but it was the monarchy. Right. was yeah, the kaiser yeah. system and germany changed so much yeah. several times mm. since then mm. that that connection is just not the same mm. yeah. and uh, i think that's that's a, a major factor like november 11th nothing happens It's okay. not right
0: it's
1: nothing yeah. there is a there is what's called a, a people's mourning day the volkstrauertag on the sunday in november closest to the 11th it's it's not on anyone's radar. It's right. a blip, You're like right. a few people participate, and that's that's pretty much it. So,
2: is it taught in schools fair, at all, or like is it yes, part of the curriculum? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh,
1: okay. It is, but uh, again, it's it's far less significant mm. uh, because the emphasis is then on the interwar period, which is seen as kind of you yeah, know been, how did we end up getting to mm, mm. Nazism mm-hmm. and then the Second yeah. World War. So yeah, yeah. It, it is taught. Um, but again, it's, it's almost like uh, the impression is, you know, when we learn about the kings and queens of Europe in the 1600s, yeah, 1800s, yeah. to yeah. them, the Kaiser in, in, in the early 20th century is just as anachronistic and, and remote. Yeah. Sure. So. Yeah. Okay, that's, in, that's, that's a really interesting shift. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 which
2: I hadn't really considered. I forgot
1: before. something, by the way, about the significance for today. Or what the lay person needs to know it made the us as a world power mm. it brought the us onto the stage as a world power that's involved heavily in international affairs now of course they went back from that slightly with kind of partial isolationist policies but that's a big deal because that era of world history is still with us. Yes. so Yeah. Forgot about definitely. That. No. Definitely. Yeah.
2: Absolutely.
3: As recent Australian
1: alliance oh. treaties.
3: <laughs>
2: oh,
3: that's a sore point. Pretty for- much
2: all Australian <laughs> alliance treaties. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, um, all right. Which
3: which segues nicely it because does, yes. uh, our our ed- federal education minister here in Australia has been talking a lot recently about uh, contested history. Actually, he's also been blocking a lot of uh, teachers on Twitter because we <laughs> we've been we've been contesting history with him.
2: Oh, how um, dare you? How very dare you? <laughs> I know, I know. Um,
3: and so it, it, he's he's been talking specifically about commemorating Anzac Day and how we should venerate it um, and and the veneration of Australian soldiers. Um, which leads me to ask you the question, how do you think we should actually remember World War I? Is it something we should be constantly revising, reviewing and learning from and, and you know how should we go about the commemoration of World War I in light of that?
1: Ah uh, we've left the Pandoras box for <laughs> um, Well, it's hard for me to say should, right but I'm, so I'll. I'll say what comes to mind, even yeah though this is uh, this is you know the the use of history and the interpretation of history now it's it's where it's at it's the it's the complex side of the coin. I think when I think about commemorating and remembering history, I try to remember that this is different than the academic study of history, and that, you know, historical facts are different than how we interpret those historical facts Mm. in the pursuit of an academic explanation and understanding of history versus how we use those historical facts for political purposes or commemoration purposes. Mm. Now, Mm. so those are kind of some different things that overlap, but are different. And I think that um, if we understand that, then that's the first stage in trying to assess, you know, what could commemoration look like because it's not an investigation of history it is an emotional experience based on one's interpretation of history and Mm. that is a political a political thing obviously I think commemoration has a danger to it that we slip towards a one-sided interpretation that we oversimplify things in a way that causes us to lose sight of some of the uglier parts of historical experiences and events that are useful for us to remember. Mm, mm. But at the same time, I think it can be uh, useful in a way if it's, if we're cautious about it. I think one example of that is it's important to think about the, different motivations of states for fighting in, in the first world war, because yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. there's this underlying idea in the English speaking world that our cause was just, and that, you know, democratic Britain and democratic United States are fighting with democratic France against autocratic militaristic Germany and Austria, Hungary. Mm-hmm. Now that's partly true. Like that, that is, no, no that is true. I should say. So Britain's motivations are worth thinking about in that context to protect Belgium from being invaded by a militaristic neighbor mm. and to prevent an undemocratic militaristic Germany from becoming the dominant power in Europe. At the same time, you know, Britain has less charitable interests, right? Mm. And of course they, they, want to stop another state from increasing its power. Why? So they can maintain more of their own, (laughs) so that they can maintain their empire. Mm -hmm. And the British Empire is not a great deal for most of the people living in it, Mm -hmm. uh, who are are on getting the short end of the stick uh, to understate things. Mm. And British troops do. And by British, of course, I'm including Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, South cetera, etc, etc. They do liberate parts of France and Belgium where people wanted them to be there, wanted them to liberate them from German occupation. But as a result of this war, they also occupy Iraq, they occupy Syria, they occupy Jordan, Palestine, Namibia, and all sorts of islands in the Pacific where Mm, Australians mm. and New Zealanders were given responsibility to occupy them on behalf of the British. And most of the people in those places don't look on the British Empire troops as these awesome liberators that just defeated bad old Germany in a just cause. (laughs) And so that's kind of an example of how it's complicated to commemorate, because Mm. if you just go with the the one side of things, I don't think that's historically responsible. And Mm -hmm. I think you no, know, the idea of learning lessons from history is a is an absolute minefield because we generally <laughs> yeah. don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if there's any hope that we can that we can at least draw some helpful conclusions from history or have some helpful parallels, you you need to consider the good and the bad, or mm. the stuff that you're proud of can be very closely connected to things that you might not be so proud of or might be a little more difficult to deal with. Mm, for sure. And it doesn't mean that we need to cancel one side or the other, mm, yeah. mm. but it, they both have a place. Yes. And yeah. uh, I think commemoration without that is the kind of commemoration that I'm less comfortable with.
3: Sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Good yeah. answer.
2: Yeah. I think that was a really um, considered answer and one that I think, um, the federal education minister maybe could listen to. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I think when it's used <laughs> as a political tool, I think it is that um that over- oversimplification. You know, they they just want the simple narrative and that's what we are going to commemorate and there's no um you know allowances for acknowledging that it's quite complex and there's there's two sides to the story or yeah, yeah. more even. So yeah, yeah um sure. yeah, I think that's what what we need to be looking at. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah.
3: All right. Uh, question off the cuff here, Jesse. Uh,
2: <laughs>
3: is there anything that you would like to plug upcoming that you are doing? Um, hey. <laughs> and uh, yeah, what what can we be looking out for in the coming, coming year?
1: Uh, yeah, we have big plans for 2022 on both of our YouTube channels. So, of course, there's the Great War channel, which is carrying on. We're going to mix things up, though. We're going to spice it up for 2022. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to cover the most important 1922 events that happen still. So there's all sorts of fighting going on still in Turkey. There's a civil war that breaks out in Ireland now that they've won their independence from, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Britain. But we are going to mix in some prequel conflicts to Ooh, the Great okay, War okay. We're back in time. So we're going to talk about the... The um, Russo-Japanese War, 1904-05, which I wish the Germans paid more attention to because they (laughs) don't know what Russia was. Uh, The First Balkan War of 1912-13, which Mm -hmm, obviously sets the table for Mm -hmm. the Austrian hawks who want war. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do some stuff like that, kind of uh, liven things up and change things up a little bit on the Great War Channel. And then we are going to continue... Creating some content for our newish channel, which started this summer in July, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. called Real Time History. Yep. And there we've been following the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, week by week in all of its <laughs> glory and uh, and defeat. Yep, yep. We're gonna do that till January, till that war ends. And then we're going to jump back to the Napoleonic era. Oh, yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna tell the story of Napoleon's ill-fated invasion of Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where he misjudged Russian weakness, let's Mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. to keep that threat going. (laughs) And um, we're then going to continue with the following year, 1813, when after his defeat in Russia, the coalition, the fifth coalition whoops him again in Germany.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So turning the tide in Napoleonic Wars is going to be a big theme for the Real-Time History channel, which anybody out there can find just by going on YouTube and searching for Real-Time History. It should come up that's our production company, by yes. the way, so sure. that's why
3: it's named that way. Excellent. So thank you for allowing me to <laughs> All <right. my> <laughs> of no, course. no problem. Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Me <laughs> for too. For some of those things. That'd, that'd Especially
2: the Irish, uh, yeah, the war in Ireland. I'm very interested in that, so that'll be very cool. I'm really loving the new format of the um, the Great War Channel and, um, like, the, the analysis that's going on there. Um, it's it's a great tool for us to use in the classroom, but also just on a personal level. It's um really interesting interesting. interesting to watch so thank you for your work with that
1: we appreciate that very much the whole team
3: excellent all right well thank you so much for joining us jesse we've we're very appreciative of your time
2: absolutely and
3: um uh yeah thanks for coming on yeah my pleasure thanks for
2: having me all right okay well voila that's how it came to this
3: as always you can catch us by email how did it come to this podcast at gmail.com twitter and facebook you can catch us there at hdictt podcast if you like the show remember to leave us a review if you can it helps us out how did it come to this is written by daniel matters and shivon doherty our producer is james tuckwell edited by daniel matters original music by lachlan McWhorter welcome to how did it come to this oh i've got the wrong microphone <laughs> How good was that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was on two, not one. So that the chords would reach you. Maybe that
3: can be our cold open. <laughs>
2: that could be our cold open.
3: I could put that at the end.
2: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's important for the people to know that you are fallible.
3: It's true. Very fallible. Mm-hmm. Yep.